Let's turn our Bibles to James, James chapter 1, verse 1. James chapter 1, verse 1. This Sunday we begin a series in the book of James. James, you know, is a wondrous book of wisdom, actually. It's sort of the Proverbs, the Proverbs of the New Testament. Very practical teaching throughout the letter. And Godly wisdom in an age of fools is required, I believe, and that's what James is. It's godly wisdom, I think, in an age of fools. And I would say we live in an age of fools, as it was in the first century, so it is in the 21st century. Really nothing has changed. People are still the same. And so we come to the timeless Word of God for every culture at every time and in every place. And we're going to be, I don't know, spending 10 weeks going through this letter by James. And this morning we're going to be looking at the pure joy of trial or trials. The pure joy of trials. Most of us, when we go through trials, are not thinking about how much pure joy it is, do we? I mean, that's not something you go around going, ah, oh, I'm going through a horrible situation. It's pure joy. I'm loving it, I'm loving it immensely. It's great. I mean, that's, that's sort of goes against our nature when we're going through trials. But I do believe that James is trying to direct us to this pure joy of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of trials. So let's read God's Word from James chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Verses 1 through 11. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unable, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. Because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossoms fall, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away, even when he goes about his business. This is the Word of God. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we ask a blessing on the study of your Word together this morning. Oh, Holy Spirit, work in us. Apply your Word to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to this letter, we come to a man named James. James, it says, a servant of God, or a bondservant of God, or a slave of God. By the way, he begins where he needs to begin, doesn't he? Hi, my name is James. I'm a slave for Jesus. That's how he begins. I'm his slave. That means I'm at his beck and call. That means I do what he commands me to do. 
And what he commands me to do is to write to you, O church of Jesus Christ, scattered throughout the nations. These 12 tribes scattered throughout the nations. Who are these 12 tribes? It's an interesting language, isn't it? Scattered among the nations. Well, 12 tribes clearly seems to refer to Jews. At least that is how it's been taken. And so the diaspora, diaspora, where we get to spread seed, spora, which is seed, diaspora, was seen, at least from the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles of the Jews, there were these large communities scattered throughout, really, the Middle East and the Mediterranean of Jews, not only in the Roman Empire, but actually in the Parthian Empire and other empires as well. The Jews had been scattered far and wide. Now, it could be that he's writing to those persecuted Christians that were spread out because of Saul's persecution in Jerusalem, and they have spread to various parts of the Roman Empire. That is plausible. It's at least plausible. Or maybe it's both. And then the next question is, is this simply only a Jewish community? Are these just all Jewish Christians? Or would there be Gentiles as well? Many people, again, the more you read, the more you find out no one really knows. That's what's helpful about reading a lot of things. A lot of people make a lot of positions, and then you hear someone in the next book make another position. Because actually, the book doesn't tell us. It really doesn't tell us. It doesn't say, this is only for Jews, and there's only Jews in these churches. Because the fact is, in the ancient world, there was this great ache in the heart of Roman society, at least. And so you have all these God-fearers who are attending synagogue. It would seem that within these communities, there would be a few Gentile stragglers, at least, right? At least give a few stragglers their due. And in fact, in the history of Israel, are all Jews actually Jews? Or did they start off not being Jews? There were many added, obviously, from Egyptian descent, Midian descent, Moabite descent, Ammonite descent. You can keep going, can't you? That have found in Yahweh the one true God, the God of Israel. So obviously this community, although probably highly comprised of, of Jews, would have had a few Gentiles as well. And it does appear from the letter that the Jerusalem Council has not happened. There's no mention to the Jerusalem Council, but this is an argument from silence, isn't it? We don't really know. Maybe you'll enjoy this afternoon taking up God's Word, reading the book of James. We're not certain. We don't know exactly, but we think it was probably written before the council in Jerusalem, which would have been in 48 or 49 A.D., so it might actually be the earliest epistle in the Gospels. Of the 27 books of the New Testament, this is probably the earliest of all the writings. Well, let's get, let's get on to James. Talked enough about maybe the community he's writing to. Needless to say, they're Christians. That's what probably most important, right? They have been gripped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they have come to faith in Him and have found their identity in Him. But who is this James character? James, this servant of God, this slave of God. Now, throughout the ages, the church has seen this as James the Just. James the Just or James the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you go to some other letters in the gospel, like Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, James is called the brother, the Lord's brother. James' name also comes up as a list of four brothers in the gospels. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. In Nazareth, they were, Jesus gets up, and you're hearing this has been fulfilled, but this is what it says. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't, isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or you might know him as Jude? So you have the youngest brother, possibly, Jude, writing the letter of Jude, and here the oldest or the second oldest of the brothers named James. Jude himself says Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And what do we know about James' understanding of his brother's early ministry? Well, he didn't believe he was the Messiah. They didn't believe. That's what John chapter 7, verse 5 says. They did not believe. They encouraged him to go up to Jerusalem on the Feast of Tabernacles. Show yourself. You can't do this stuff in private, as if he had do, been doing any of this in private. It's been clear. His, his messianic ministry had been clearly in public. But his brothers, it is clear from John's own testimony, and they would have known each other. It appears that they were probably related. He would have known about their unbelief, that they did not truly believe the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's something that happens, and it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that changes everything. And you find that in the early church, in the upper room, as they were coming back from Jesus' ascension, they went up to the upper room, and what you find in Acts chapter 1 verse 14 is that this community is praying, Mary is there as well, and his brothers. And his brothers. Now, we are assuming that one of those brothers is James. But also, I think what's important for us to hear is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, is that the Lord Jesus Christ appeared particularly to his brother James. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, you will find that he appeared to James, and then Paul says, oh, and lastly to me, one who is, you know, abnormally born. So James is a man that at one time doubted Jesus' messianic ministry. But he's a man who has had everything changed at the resurrection of his brother from the dead and his appearance to him from the dead and what we see very early on, even in that, that small nucleus of believers, there he is in the upper room praying between uh, the ascension of Jesus and Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit. This is the man who is writing to this church, or these churches, we should say, these churches. A man who never mentions anything about his past, anything about him being a half-brother, anything about, hey, I'm related to these people. No, I'm a slave of God. I'm his servant. And that's all you are, isn't it? Aren't you all just doulosses? Servants, bond servants, 
slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ, bought and paid for in His blood in order that you might be His emissaries, His ambassadors in the world? Just like James. And, the J- and James says to the disciples, and, and when you read it, we're, we get so used to reading biblical language, and we hear the phrases so much that after a while it doesn't really seem that crazy. But just listen to what he says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Consider it pure joy. Does he know what he's talking about? Does he not know how we're being persecuted? Does he not know how our fellow Jews hate our guts? I mean, go back to the first century. These were people who were outcasts in their own community. These were not the inner circle of influence. They might have been, but now they're out in the outer circle and spread out throughout the nation. And they have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, all these trials and these persecutions that are happening to you, consider them pure joy. And then James later on says in James chapter 1 verse 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Blessed, happy is the man who perseveres under trial. Now, where had James heard this language from? Where had the James, who would have been the head of the Jerusalem church, heard this language from? Well, there was a really good rabbi uh, wandering around in uh, Galilee and in Jerusalem and Judea. And this is what he said, Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. Leap for joy. Seems very Jewish, right? You get really excited, really animated, worked up. They're not Northern Europeans, okay? Just want to say that. They're not Northern Europeans. But he says, rejoice. This is Jesus saying this. When you're persecuted for my name, rejoice. Leap for joy. Start dancing. And we're all going, what? Come on, you, you know you. I mean, you've heard this passage before. <sighs> Leap for joy. Pure joy, count it, consider it. Weigh it as pure joy. And I think that, that probably that word is important for us to hear as we look at the pure joy of trials is that word consider is to engage in an intellectual process, to, to think, consider, regard, make a decision after weighing the facts or circumstances. So this is not the first reaction, is it? The first reaction of trials is not probably leaping and not rejoicing. But he says, weigh it, count it, think about it. Think about your trials. Think about those trials. And then you will be able to see that it's pure joy. Or all joy is actually the direct translation. All joy. Huh. All joy. So these trials, 
that not only the first century believers in the diaspora are experiencing, or the diaspora, but for the saints gathered here this morning, we are called to weigh our trials. And brothers and sisters, I want you to consider that trials of many kinds in the Christian life and in the ministry of the church lead to pure joy, all joy, and an eternal weight of glorious joy. I want to say that, an eternal weight of glorious joy. Because if you'll notice in James chapter 1, verse 12, is he will receive a crown of life. And what you see Jesus saying, because great is your reward in heaven. So as we weigh our present circumstances, our present trials, we weigh them in view of the reward that we have in Jesus Christ. An eternal reward. Jesus teaches like this, and so does James that we need to see our trials in light of our eternal reward. Now, we live in a culture of the now, don't we? We're always thinking about the now, in the now, living in the now. We're a very immediate culture, right? The entire economic system is based on the now. I need it now. I need to order it now. I can press it and I can get one-day shipping. Oh, I can do it now. Now, 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 now. We live in the now, don't we? But living in the now often, often clouds the eternal. Because I think the now is just like living in the fog in the San Joaquin Valley that's so thick you have to roll down the windows to listen to the traffic that's cross-traffic so that you don't get T-boned. That's pretty dark fog. Roll down them windows. Because the fog is so thick you can't even see anything. I think that we're living in a cultural moment that it's just clouding the vision of the church by its now. And we miss the glorious future that is to come. How often do you meditate on your eternal reward? How often do you meditate on the glories of heaven and the wonder of being in the presence of the living God who indwells you now, but will be revealed to you in a way that, well, as that song says, we can, I can only imagine, right? I can only imagine. Clearly, James wants his readers to consider to weigh their trials in view of their eternal reward so that they might see every trial as pure joy. Trials are inevitable, Right? How many of you are going through a renewed trial or a present trial? Or this trial has been stretching on for years and years and years, and it hasn't gone away. It's still there. Anyone there? I know there's some of you here. Trials are various in nature, aren't they? We don't go through all the same trials. There's relational trials that some of you are engaging with with your, your husband or your wife or your sons or your daughters or your brother or your sister or your coworker, then the political, of course, the political has to come up because, oh my, if there's a fog that likes to cloud our vision to the eternal, it's politics. And I would say there are trials happening right now in politics because we've politicized everything to our 
destruction and foolishness. Economic, cultural, tragedy. And one of the trials, this word trials can also be used for temptation. Temptations. Uh, those come up all the time, don't they? How about you? How many times do they come up? Temptations. Those are trials. Count it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Hmm. And of course we know that trials come unexpectedly. There's no better example than the man named Job. They were unexpected and unimaginable. That could happen to you. Right? That can happen to you today. That can happen to you tomorrow. That can happen this year in the year of our Lord, 2024. Unexpected and unimaginable. And James would say, Oh, sister, oh, brother, count it pure joy. Because the testing of your faith, it's going to develop perseverance. You're going to be a woman, you're going to be a man that you never imagined yourself to be. And there will be joy. And never, never forget that wondrous, glorious, eternal joy that cannot fade. Always keep that in your front, in front of you. As you're driving down the roads of life and these trials. Yes, trials test faith, don't they? Some of you know what that's like this year. Some of you know what's that like because you've had so many trials. And they prove faith genuine, don't they? I love, I do love hearing the Apostle Peter, you know, both teach, rebuke, and correct, and train up my heart for righteousness' sake. He says this in 1 Peter 1, 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. He's not minimizing the pain of trials, is he? He's very realistic. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And I would believe that's the coming of Jesus Christ on the last day. All for his praise, glory, and honor. But trials prove your faith genuine, don't they? You actually need them. We actually need them in this mortal life, in this fallen world, to prove our faith genuine. If your son or daughter is to die this year, your faith would be tested, wouldn't it? It would be tested to the extreme. And it would determine whether your faith is genuine, wouldn't it? They come, these ugly trials. And some of you know what it's like to be tested at the death of a son or a daughter. But God does use these to 
test our faith, to declare to our own heart that our faith is genuine, is genuine, even in all these trials. And also, trials declare our God-dependence. Okay? Trials declare our God-dependence. I want to frame it like that, our God-dependence. When all is going well, it's easy to say I depend on God. It's very different than when all is going badly. And 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you know the Apostle Paul uh, desired that a thorn in the flesh would be taken from him. We have no idea what that thorn was. But he asked three times and it was never taken away. And so he persisted in this trial of this thorn. And this is what he says about what Jesus said to him. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God-dependent. Do you think Paul just learned that briefly, just took him no time? He had learned that through many, many trials. He had learned contentment through many, many struggles and sufferings. And so do we as the saints, as these trials test our faith. And it's clear in the text that trials develop perseverance. I've said it before, something about stickability when it comes to God. We persevere. We, we, we just like stick them. You know, just you hold on. Even though you feel like everything has just been turned upside down, there's a stickability. You hold on. And if there's one man that reminds me of a, of a man that was going to stick to God with his stickability, it's Job. And actually, at the end of the book, at chapter 5, verse 11, this is what he says about Job. As you know, we considered blessed or happy those who have persevered. If you're persevering, that's good. You should be. That's ha I'm, that makes me happy. And he says this, you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. It develops perseverance, doesn't these trials? It did that in the life of Job. Now, Job wasn't always right, was he? Job failed in these trials, but he still persevered, didn't he? He still kept coming to God and coming to others. He persevered. And what we also know is that trials persevered through Bring Christ-like maturity. Perseverance must finish its work so that you, brothers and sisters, may be mature, complete, not lacking in anything. Yes, trials persevered through bring Christ-like maturity. You hear the Apostle Paul in, Galatians, in Philippians chapter 3, 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ took hold of me. I love that language. He wants to be like Christ, doesn't he? 
He wants to experience his sufferings. He wants to, to know Christ even more, but he knows that he's not there. He knows that he hasn't arrived. But what does he do? If you look later on the context, he presses on, doesn't he, to take hold of the prize which God has called him heavenward. And this is a man who's writing from prison, waiting for trial. And yet, he still presses on. He understands that these trials preserved through bring Christ-like maturity. So in the mud of trials, the potter is fashioning the saints for Christ-like maturity. And I think that's a good way to think of trial. In the mud. In the mud of trials, the potter is fashioning the saints, that's you, sister and brothers, for Christ-like maturity. We know that in this life we will barely arrive, right? But we have to press on. That's the wondrous example. That is the end goal, to be more like Christ and to be one day fully mature and complete, like not lacking in anything. Don't, can't you wait for that crown of life to come? your eternal inheritance. The heart fashioned by the potter yearns more and more for eternal rewards. I see that all the time. Yearns more and more for eternal rewards. And then Paul says this, not Paul. Well, Paul says a lot because I'm reading a lot of Paul. I know, reading a lot of Paul as we're studying the book of James. Can't believe it. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. What is clear is that we don't have wisdom for all these trials that we're going through, do we? You've never been there, have you? Maybe you're going through a trial that you have never been at this place, but you're going through that. What should you do? Ask God for wisdom. Go to him who is the source of all knowing and all power, and he's ever-present. Wisdom to learn from trials. That's what you're asking for. That's what we're being instructed to do here. Because clearly, as we go through trials, we are in need of wisdom. We are in need of eternal perspective. Now, I want to look very briefly at verse 5 at, the, at those parts Ask God, who gives, generously is like simply, to all without finding fault. Ask God. What does that mean, to ask God? Well, first, you hear, he gives, doesn't he? The God that you're coming to, whom you cry out, Abba, Father, who you address as our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, is a God who gives, right? Isn't that wonderful that if you're going to come praying to God and you don't think he gives, oh my goodness, you've already failed. You've already failed because the God you are addressing is a God who gives. He gives, well, didn't he give the universe from nothing? He made all things. Hasn't he not given you new birth and to an everlasting hope? He gives and gives and gives and gives, doesn't he? It's important for us to remember as we come to God. But also generously or simply. Or as I sometimes will say, he gives without strings attached. 
Uh, yes, there are, there are stipulations to the covenant in Christ's blood, but he doesn't give as other people do, does he? And, and who does he give to? A select minority? A special kind of people? Or, what's the word? All. Right? All. And then the last, without finding fault. One thing I know about people, we are excellent at finding fault, aren't you? Just raise your hand. Come on. You, you are, you're not doing it. You hypocrites. You hypocrites. Well, it's true, isn't it? We know we all are. We do find fault quite easily, don't we? For various forms and reasons, probably having to do with our ego and our pride. But when God gives, how does he give? Does he give, well, maybe I'd give to him, but you know, I've given about a thousand times to him. And he never changes, so I won't give anything to the guy. Imagine if God gave finding fault. Would he ever answer your prayer? No, because you have so many faults, right? You have buckets and truckloads and mountain ranges of faults. And he's been given, given. But with God, without finding fault, isn't that wondrous to know? When you come to God, he's not looking to find fault in you because there's plenty to go around in this room, isn't there? But he doesn't, you come to him with one who doesn't find fault in you. That's just glory, hallelujah. Let's go and pray, right? Isn't that our response? Oh, we got to pray because that's the best news ever. Because unlike with other people, they find fault, but God finds he's not looking for fault. In fact, when he looks at you, how does he see you, oh, saint? He sees you in his son and him crucified. He sees you wearing his righteous royal robes imputed to you. He sees you as one who is forgiven, who is filled with his spirit, who is a son or daughter adopted into his family. He sees one who would inherit, inherit all things. He's a good father. He doesn't want to find fault in you. He wants to love you. That's what I need to hear in 2024. So we should be all rushing the throne room of grace today. Begging to get there first. That would be a little selfish, but we don't have to worry about that because he has no limit. Oh, brothers and sisters, I know I go too long, and you know what? We can, we can do the rest next week. But it's good to, to see God in his, and he's a God that doesn't find fault. Right there, there's a joy in that, isn't there? There's a joy in that. May you come constantly to him who finds no fault without doubt, trusting that he will hear your prayer and he will give you what you need. And often what you need is not what you're thinking. What you often need is definitely not what you think God needs to hear. But he will give you what you need. And don't doubt. Because he's a good giving and a no-finding-fault God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that we have been called your people. We're thankful that we're born again. We're thankful that we come in your presence and you're a God that gives. Oh, Heavenly Father, would we be a people coming to you knowing that you give and you give to all. And you don't look to find fault, but rather you are looking to build up your saints.
so that we would see all trials as pure joy as you give us godly wisdom in all circumstances so that you would be glorified in us to the praise of your glorious grace that has been found in Christ Jesus. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.